Hi, hi, and welcome to the Green File Podcast with Ben and Mark Cullen, the dynamic gardening duo. Well, one of them's more dynamic than the other. We'll let you decide which one that might be. This week, we welcome Shane Jones, our good friend to these airwaves. Shane is a career gardener, landscaper, educator, and currently, well, he's a farmer at uh, the at the Food and Urban Farming uh, College of Durham College in Durham Region. Now, I kind of got that a little wrong, but he's going to correct me here because it's a long handle. We know Shane is a passionate teacher with a vision for the future of food. This vision, we're soon to discover, so stay tuned, focuses on urban farming, but I might add food sustainability and food insecurity as it pertains to Canada and to some degrees, North America. Welcome, Shane, to The Green File with Ben and Mark Cullen. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, I've known you for some time. I mean, in the early days at Landscape Ontario, uh, you're uh, quite the renowned public speaker, right? You've been doing that for a while. (laughs) I don't know about renowned, but I've been doing it for a while. Well, you're renowned to me. And... uh, uh, why don't we begin by you giving us a little background and what brought you to Durham College as an instructor and as the overseer of the urban farm at the Barrett Center? Absolutely. So the um, the trail that I trekked, as it were, is, uh, is a little twisty, but um, coming from industry, uh, I actually started teaching at a high school in Scarborough where we started an urban farm there at uh, Lawrence and Midland. Well, it used to be Bendale um, Business and Technical Institute at the time. Uh, And I stayed there for a number of years. We built up that garden with a culinary school or culinary uh, program that they had at the high school. Uh, But when Durham started to make their program, they asked me to to, uh, do a little bit of work on some curriculum and eventually to start teaching with them. So I've been with Durham now for the past 10 years uh, as uh, an instructor, as a coordinator, um, and now I'm moving on, at least for a period of time, to help build out the new Barrett Center farm that's going to be in Ajax. Which I have visited, and I'm quite impressed by the raw material. Of course, there's nothing there yet. I mean, it's it, that's not fair. It, there is something there. But why don't you tell us just a little bit about what's in Ajax that you are about to transform into something pretty spectacular? Right now, it's it's just a green field uh, that's, that's fenced in. But uh, most importantly, it's at the center of a community. And uh, there are townhouses across the street. There, there's a couple of high schools, actually, just on the very north side of our property. Uh, there's apartment buildings and condominiums, uh, subdivisions just down the road. There's we're really in the center of that community, which is what we most wanted uh, to, to move this forward so that we could have that chance to showcase what urban farming can be and um, start to bring farming back into the city so that people can have that experience and understanding of what it looks like, uh, which we've kind of lost touch with. Um, Shane, I, I want to ask you, um, this, is a, this is a farm in a city that's also a college, and we've alluded to its its title. It's got a long handle, as Dad described. But what is it called exactly, and what does what does sustainability mean to the new Barrett Center? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And so it's something um, that we're kind of kind of uh, what is sustainable urban agriculture? The, the, the technical title for the for the space will be the Barrett Center, the Barrett Center Farm of Innovation in Sustainable Urban Agriculture. That's a lot of big words. Uh, what does that really mean in sustainable urban agriculture? And I, I think um, trying to define it in and of itself is probably the, the worst thing that we can do in that growing food, no matter how it is that we do it or how it is that we involve community in food production, um, is uh, it, it doesn't need to be defined as uh, something that we can picture, like a, a farmer with a straw hat on a tractor in a thousand acres. This this is going to be something that's going to fit a bunch of different models and a bunch of different places as we move forward. We're going to do our best to make sure that it, uh, it gives that look of what some people might think of when they look at farming, but also to introduce some other visions of other things that it can look like so that those people who are walking by and those students from the high schools that are involved or those community members that, that want to have their voice heard or even just want to stop by and see what we're doing so that they all have some understanding as to the different ways in which urban agriculture uh, can be done, how it can look and how it can feed back into a community and create a greater balance in that community. And that I think that's ultimately what we're trying to do. It's not just a physical farm, but it, it's really more about involving community, educating community, um, and then just making sure that these resources that we develop along the way are available to everyone so that we can start to solve some of these problems that we've gotten ourselves into. You know, so, uh, Shane, uh, when, when I think, sorry, Ben, just one sec, but when I think of urban agriculture, I I agree with you. I'm certainly not thinking of a farmer on a John Deere with a straw hat <laughs> and a piece of, piece, piece of grass in his mouth. Um, but, but I, I, do that, though. I, I mean, you could, yes, you could do, <laughs> uh, but although I'm not sure about the John Deere and your three acres in Ajax, no. um, I, I, I do wonder what is it that makes urban farming so different from, um, a thousand acres of soybeans in Saskatchewan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of the trick of it, but I mean, farmers have always been innovators, right? And whatever space that we have that's given to us, uh, we find ways to make it productive. And so, I mean, yeah, there's going to be some some growing in plots of earth um, and some rows. It'll probably look more what's what's like um, uh, referred to as a market garden. So a, a bunch of different types of crops all in the same space, sort of a polyculture of a bunch of things going on, some fruit trees. Uh, there's going to be some covered um, uh, passive solar greenhouse, which is a, a just a technical term for a, a, a double plastic uh, metal framed hoop. Um, and uh, also we're looking at putting in something of a controlled environment, uh, like shipping container that can grow food as well. Again, just to show all of the different ways in which we can create food in a smaller space uh, right in the center of a community. So aside from being urban in context, um, what type of sustainable agricultural practices, you know, do you have a particular interest in? Is it regenerative? Is it organic or um, something else? Yeah, organic as a term is a really tough one, right? I mean, we all uh, we all have organic practices, as it were, but to really get that label is going to be very difficult in an urban setting because 
we don't have that longevity of organic practices or or um, like no chemicals, no pesticides. That is, we can't prove that as a as a timeline to be able to be certified organic, even if we're doing things in a way that is using the least amount of any chemicals or pesticides, doing the least amount of tilling, disturbing the soil or disturbing the uh, the so- the soil biome and the the rhizosphere, doing as little uh, having as little impact as possible. Uh, and growing the most amount of food that we can, uh, I, I'm those low-till, no-till ideas and, and companion planting, all of those ideas are going to kind of uh, come together in that one small space. And that's that's how we look at at least one version uh, of um, urban agriculture in reclaiming that spot. That That's kind of what we've done with the Whitby campus. It, uh, for those who have been in the area, who know that area where the college is, that used to be a chocolate factory uh, when I was growing up, and now it's now it's a functioning college. But again, now it also hosts a one-acre farm and a 300-tree orchard, and we're reclaiming that space and, and year by year making that soil more productive and more living. Uh, and doing our best to nurture uh, what we've been given to to make more and more year after year. So I want to zero in uh, before I turn it back to Dad on low-till, no-till. Um, by its name, I think people understand implicitly it means tilling less. Um, can you just zero in on that? Why? And then in a market garden setting, you know, which are pretty high management crops, vegetables, right? Um, yes. What does what does low till no till look like? What are some specific practices in a market garden setting uh, where you're practicing minimum till, and why? Well, one we don't want to uh, damage what's under the ground um, as much as possible. So all all of those uh, uh, connections and that living. Um, a rhizosphere, like what's happening underground, all the mycelial connections, all of the, the, the biology and the bacteria that's happening down there. We want to disturb it as little as possible um, so that it continues to grow and it will end up helping those plants. So that just means we're not digging down, you know, eight inches every year and, and bringing in a tiller and, and turning everything over year by year. And, and that means that, as we practice, what we're going to be doing is simply just top dressing with some some compost um, and, you know, just kind of keeping an eye on, on where our soil is, making sure that we're not adding too much of any one thing or another. Maybe some some um, um, other uh, parts of this that we need to add, like if we need to add a little bit more organic content to increase the, the, the water holding capacity, um, we're at least gladly in our new space dealing with something that's more of a uh, a sandy loam. So it's absolutely fantastic soil to be given in comparison to what we've been working with in Whitby for the past 10 years. But, and then uh, when we do add that compost, we're just maybe, you know, tilthering it in, like just, just that top little bit and just kind of incorporating it along the top. Uh, any roots that might be left over, we're trying to let degrade naturally. We're going to be doing crop rotation to make sure that we're not, um, really uh, hosting a lot of uh, insects that might be particular to the crops that we had there in the year before in, in a small space, just kind of modeling those practices. 
So Shane, um, let's let's agree that uh, the world population is likely to grow over the next generation or two, and the amount of space that humankind has devoted to agriculture is not likely to grow. In fact, it's more than likely to shrink. So you know you don't have to be a chartered accountant to figure out the numbers. They just they don't really work all that well. And so there's a lot of discussion about food insecurity, and not just today. And today. It is a problem. But, you know, when we look down the pipe, when we look in our crystal ball, we see food insecurity is likely to become a greater problem for us. To what degree and how exactly does urban agricultural ag- agriculture rather provide a bit of a key to a successful future in terms of feeding our population? I think it does it in a number of ways. Um, and I, I'm not saying that... Um, that urban agriculture is a replacement for traditional agriculture. No, it, it's not going to be. And, and we realize that, but I think at the same time, um, some of the things that we can model as far as urban agriculture is concerned, go beyond just the creation of food in and of itself. I mean, being able to make uh, uh, grow food close to where the consumer is, does have its benefits for certain. And it, it helps us to be less dependent on some of the other ecosystems where we're, we're pulling it out of or, or shipping it from that absolutely helps. And some of those more perishable products like the say lettuce and kale, those ones that really don't travel well, we can easily create them in a city center that reduces their, their movement and um, their um, consumption at, at a, a rate or sorry, at a, uh, in a way that that's um, gets the most nutritional value or bang for its buck to the consumer. So that that's one way. Yeah, we can make food, but I think it goes beyond that. And I think that's really what we're trying to do uh, as far as putting it in a social situation here is just, we have uh, lost some of our, our connection with food in our in food production. I don't want to say we've lost connection with food necessarily because I can go down to the grocery store right now and and get any number of fruit that are not in season where I live at any mm. time of year. Amen. Right? Uh, yep. But, but um, most people have no connection as to where that food comes from, how it's produced, um, or or value in in some ways the work that goes into it. I, I grew up with my grandfather um, growing food on about a quarter of an acre at, you know, where I was growing up, where my parents and my grandparents grew up together. So I, I grew up with both of them. And... And I, I had a value to the food that was being created because I could see the work that went into it. And certainly I've, I have more value to the food that I make. I think that anybody who grows their own food puts a, a greater value to it, is less likely to waste, understands better the, um, uh, the, the food cycle and, and when stuff is available, when it's not. Like what, if, if we're constantly buying food that's out of season, we're obviously being uh, harder on our systems in our, our planet by mm. having to bring it from other systems. So we've lost that generational connection, generational knowledge as to what food is. And I think that part of this and what we're going to do is really bring it back into uh, a, a better understanding for, for the community that's around it. Like even just passive connection. I, I remember teaching back in Scarborough and we, um, we planted apple trees. We, of course, we got them first thing in the spring. They came in bare root and we planted the trees. 
Uh, and so that's at a time of year where we're starting to get towards the end of the semester for uh, and summer vacation for the students in the high school. And they were anxious to see, okay, when is it going to grow apples? And it had to stop and say, well, not till fall and probably not this year. We just planted them. But they, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, and they, they didn't know that. And it's not because, you know, they're not intelligent people. It's just because they didn't, they didn't understand that there's a cycle to food that they weren't, they were never been exposed to. And I think what we can do with this in, in educating people, even if it's just passive education, then the community around it can't help but understand food better and value their their food that they have and develop a greater food security as they learn skills to grow their own. So this is a um, a series of coursework. For, is it a diploma in horticulture? Or is it a diploma in urban agriculture? So what type of students are you trying to attract and and what do they what should they expect to have uh, when they're done their their program at the Barrett Center? So it's um, the the diploma, like the um, the the accreditation that they're getting is through Durham College. We're not really delivering the curriculum uh, completely through Barrett Center so much as it's just going to be another vehicle for us to deliver curriculum or another um, um, version of what we can sort of show them as as far as going on. Most of the curriculum is, is delivered through Durham College at the Whitby campus, but the two programs, one as a horticulture technician, a two year diploma. Uh, is uh, sort of more aligned to the red sealed trade that is horticulture in Canada. And the second one is um, uh, called food and farming. And it is um, exactly that. It, it's about growing food in more of a, a niche or, or artisanal sort of agricultural setting, urban agricultural setting. But it also takes that growing food and, and um, uh, wash pack store uh, sort of post-harvest and then takes it into also food processing. So the students get some understanding as to what it looks like uh, from the food chemistry and um, uh, microbiology processing and, and then product development. So they get the, the whole length of it all the way up to when they would pass that off either to a consumer or even going into the culinary programs that are at the CFF. And there's a lot of uh, cross program relations there where, We'll have some of the culinary students work with us from time to time. And certainly our students are used to um, speaking with the chefs and delivering food up there. So all of that all together, uh, those both programs, two-year diploma programs. And we have some students who will end up taking both programs. They, they enjoy it so much they end up wanting the knowledge. It's a very difficult, some difficult decision for some students coming in. And then... Um, and then we're going to be able to hopefully provide these opportunities for urban farm type settings as, as vehicles to get out into industry and show them what's going on. So the, the two students that are former students that are, are uh, helping me with constructing the new farm in Ajax for the Barrett Center, graduates from either of the programs, one from horticulture, one from food and farming. And we're looking at hiring other students um, as time goes on and as it gets bigger. And hopefully we expand to other communities and keep moving this forward. Shane, um, I want to I want to go back to the Whitby campus for just a moment, and there's a, a, it, it looks like a trailer, and it's an indoor. You, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's an indoor controlled environment for growing food vertically, uh, using high intensity light. 
Yeah. First of all, can you describe it for our listeners? Because I don't think I've done a very good job. And secondly, <laughs> when you think about the future of food and the future of urban farming, to what extent is this method of growing food going to be part of our future? I I don't know, Mark. I think you did a pretty good job explaining it. <laughs> it's uh, it's exactly that. It's a, it's a recycled um, uh, shipping container um, that uh, has been converted to a vertical um, growing space, controlled environment, and yeah, it's uh, it it produces all of the lettuce that we need for Whitby campus for the culinary programs, Bistro sixty seven. Uh, and even allows us to sell some through pantry and into some outside uh, vendors. So it produces a lot of lettuce. And how how much is that a part of urban agriculture going forward? I think it's absolutely integral to going forward. It, any space that we can use indoors, I mean, if we really want to think about it, a greenhouse is a controlled environment too. It's just a controlled mm-hmm. environment with a lot of sunlight. Mm-hmm. But the shipping container, we have to bring all of the light in, but it is much better insulated. So it's a different type of environment. Where we see reused spaces all throughout urban urban centers, we could see them converted into larger vertical farms, whether it be the food grown completely vertical or in bunk bed styles. We're seeing it more and more and more. And we we want to model that so that students have an understanding of how it is that you deal with that sort of controlled environment as it's different from a greenhouse. But yeah, I, I see it as absolutely integral moving forward. So I, I just, I, I, I have something occurs to me as I'm, I'm listening to the methods and the practices that you're describing. And there's, there's a lot of resourcefulness involved. And I think maximizing productivity on a diminishing land base is really interesting. And my, yeah. my observation from having gone to school for agriculture particularly as someone who didn't grow up on a farm, is that um, by and large, most people, young people who are becoming farmers uh, that didn't grow up on farms. So this is a huge barrier to entry is is land. And the majority who've been successful in becoming farmers, the transformation from non-farm kid to farmer, have been going this exact route where they get a small piece of land and they farm the heck out of it. <laughs> and, That's and, the technical uh, term. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it's urban, but often it's small plots near urban. Yep. And, um, you know, I'm excited by the fact that this is a program that's tailored to that because, you know, m- lowering those barriers to entry, I think, is the only way to diversify agriculture, uh, which, you know, people in agriculture know is badly needed. And um, to make it younger again, because, you know, also it's an industry with a bit of a demographic problem. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And, and I'm, I'm curious to know, do you have any students who've, who've gone that far? Has the program been long, been around long enough to say um, that that's been a successful track for, for any alumni? Uh, well, let me first say that I'm in complete agreement that 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 is that encapsulates the the struggles and also the the mindset of the people that are coming into this industry. Um, the the program's been in existence. Uh, this will be its ninth year, uh, but I'll admit that its first year only had two students, two graduates, I should say. Uh, it was a pretty slim, pretty slim first cohort. Uh, and I would say that we are starting to see some successes. I mean, it's it's really difficult in a short timeline to see how many people 
have been successful. And I will admit that some of our students don't even go into necessarily food production, but they go into the food processing end, like whether it be with breweries or uh, any any number of uh, um, food analytical sort of uh, sectors. But we've had a couple of people who are definitely out there and who are taking small plot intensive farming in that maybe not quite urban, but that sort of peri-urban sort of space and, and making it successful. They're, they're making a go of it. And I, I think that um, there's a culture out there that makes this ripe for moving forward in that there's, there's so many more small businesses or entrepreneurs like restaurants that are demanding that local food or they're consumers for, for these small restaurants that are making those demands in and of themselves. Like where does this food come from? And, Oh, you're partnered with this farm and that's great. And you know, those connections are being made at community level that are really fostering this moving forward. Great. Dad, any more questions for Shane? Um, you know, I'm just so excited by uh, Shane's words and his work and the commitment that the people at Durham College have made to the future of food vis-a-vis urban agriculture, which uh, is, I think, gaining traction. He says nine years. And, you know, one thing I know about Shane is he's rather modest. And he would be the first to say, yeah, but we only had two cohorts. Well, <laughs> he's also had quite a few since then. And I know uh, because I've met many of the current students and some of the graduates in recent years, they're extremely enthusiastic. And Ben, I'm glad you mentioned the the, 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 the issue around the future of traditional farmers. You, you said they have a demographic, a demographic issue. Perhaps you can explain for listeners who don't really know what you meant by that, what you meant by that. And, and just let me add that here is an opportunity, as you've mentioned it, for non-farming families and people who don't have access to hundreds of acres, i.e. tons of real estate, to become farmers. And you, you have seen it. You can name a lot of your friends who are doing this. And by the way, a farmer, and we've been talking about food, a farmer doesn't necessarily have to grow food. They can grow perennials. They can grow wildflowers. They can grow trees. They are farmers also. And that's like a whole nother genre that I'd really love to touch on in a future podcast. But Ben, perhaps you could explain a little bit about the demographic problem, and I'll let you put a wrap on this with my thanks to Shane. (laughs) Well, um, I guess in more specific terms, you know, um, agricultural communities are overwhelmingly white um, just because of the legacy of land ownership and, um, you know, the barriers that that puts in place for anybody trying to get into agriculture. And and therefore it's, um, you know, doesn't reflect the rest of Canada. And also what's what has happened often is the next generation's not getting in. Uh, or staying in agriculture, that is not all farm kids become farmers, and that's okay. What tends to happen is those farms, when they go on the market, are purchased by nearby incumbents that are becoming larger. So we have fewer larger farms, and um, you know there are exceptions. Certainly, um, a lot of immigration from Europe has has contributed to rejuvenating urban or rural Ontario's ag sector, no doubt, but. Um, the broader trend is that it's, it's getting older and there's fewer larger farmers as, you know, what tends to happen is a neighbor buys up uh, that guy who's retiring. <laughs> and so um, agriculture as an industry doesn't reflect Canada as a whole, which, you know, creates issues, um, but also 
opportunities for people who are able to break in in their own way. And certainly, you know, ethnic markets have been shown to be underserviced by local produce. And so, you know, that's something that actually works really well in a market gardening um, environment. So, um, you know, any type of educational pathway that caters to breaking that door open, I think, is is tremendous because agri- the agriculture industry itself, in its own self-awareness, knows this is an issue and is struggling with how to address it. So um, I think this is a, a neat inroad from that perspective. Um, and I guess that's my comment on that. But uh, really, Shane, yeah, thank you for what you're doing. And um, love to come out and see the Barrett Center for Urban Sustainable Urban Agriculture Farm, if I got that right. That's close enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, so well, I, you know what? I've only just been able to wrap my head around this one as well, but Barrett Center of Innovation in Sustainable Urban Agriculture. Great. But uh, thank you again, gentlemen. I really appreciate you uh, having me on today, and I, I love the conversation. So, oh, Thanks um, so much, Shane. Thanks again. Um, keep your hands dirty, guys. <laughs> yeah, keep, your, keep your knees dirty. Um, you know, I'll add one thing here, Ben, before we move on to what you're doing in your garden right now, because uh, you and I need to have that conversation. Uh, as you know, I've been connected with the Barrett family and the Barrett Center at uh, Durham College from the beginning. And the vision is to become an internationally recognized hub of excellence in urban agricultural practices, research, education, and training. Now, it addresses some of society's biggest challenges, including food insecurity, access to safe and stable supplies of fresh food, economic stability, and the regeneration of land, to your point, for local food production. This dynamic new urban farm and the farm that Sheen has been talking about in Ajax, Ontario, these are just two of the initiatives of the Barrett Centre. I'm proud to be connected with it, proud to know Shane, and I'm extremely pleased to see the progress that's occurred over the last few years. So that's all I have to say about that. Ben, what's going on in your garden? <laughs> not much i'm i'm in the basement it's a snow day and so uh my toddler is napping <laughs> upstairs and i'm trying to not wake him up but Aww. um we have snow cover which is good because it's been an oddly mild winter as you know and mm. uh, I, I don't like to see just dry brown earth out there at this time of year so we have snow again and um, i have been researching uh for my plans for the spring and also writing because I am emceeing uh, Guelph Wellington Master Gardeners Day in the Garden event this Sunday in Guelph, which is a sold out event. It's their first year back um, since You're COVID. Kidding. And the theme this year for Day in the Garden is horticultural resilience, which I think is a great theme. So we've mm. got Daryl Blay from uh, Niagara Parks Botanical Gardens. Sean James, a friend of ours, has been on the podcast to talk about native plants and Karen Davidson-Taylor from the Royal Botanic Garden, The Healing Power of Plants. So that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about resilience with respect to horticulture as I gear up for this Sunday's event. Well, it seems to me that humans are pretty resilient. And what we're experiencing right now, kind of post-COVID, even though many of our listeners will hasten to say, no, no, COVID's still around, and I'm aware of that. But is this, is this incredible enthusiasm that people have to gather once again. And for you to say that this weekend is event is a sellout is just another confirmation to me that 
people want to get together. People need people. We need our social connections and gardeners need them as much as anybody, maybe more than most, especially in the off season. Because soon enough, we'll be out in the garden. We'll be preoccupied with partnering with Mother Nature. And for now, getting together face-to-face just means so much. And I mention this because at the Toronto Botanical Garden, they had an orchid weekend and and they featured orchids two weekends ago evidently it was a complete sellout and it was shoulder to shoulder people and they they had uh, some difficulty with crowd control now it's the first time ever that i've heard that there was difficulty with crowd control over the orchid show down at the tbg but there you go like Yeah. yeah this is this is wonderful i think we're entering very exciting phase in our history uh from that point of view and what am i doing in my garden ben well, guess what? I planted up my dahlias last weekend. Was that stupid? Oh, good for you. Well, I mean, you have a greenhouse and I don't, so That's maybe true. not. I put them in the greenhouse, and, you know, when the sun is on the greenhouse, it goes up to Fahrenheit, about 85, 90 degrees, about 30 degrees, 32 degrees uh, Celsius. Um, uh, whew, yeah. And I, I, I guess because this is a brand-new greenhouse to me, I, I'm just so anxious to get out there. And next weekend, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start sowing some seeds. I've got perennial seeds coming out my ears. And I'm saying to myself, what are you waiting for? Get out yeah. there and sow those seeds because it's something I've been looking forward to doing since November. And there's one thing about the winter weather I wanted to say. So I'm switching gears very quickly here. But you mm-hmm. mentioned that we've had a pretty mild winter in central Canada. I think most parts of Canada, it's been relatively mild. And I'm thinking the really deep temperatures that we have had recently, and hopefully we get a couple more days, like I'm talking minus 18, minus 20, is going to help control a lot of the bugs. So if you're one of those people who's bothered by cold temperatures, I just want to remind you that those cold temperatures are providing a wonderful service to all of the gardeners out there. And I remember Googling this. How cold does it have to be to kill an emerald ash borer? Mm. And to be honest with you, I've forgotten what the answer is. But <laughs> I, I was, I was kind of looking forward to finding out. Like it's cold. It's, it's yeah. cold. And when it gets cold, I'm not just picking on the emerald ash borer. It could be any number of bugs that bug you. Uh, this, is, this is a great way to bring a lot of them under control. And the beneficial bugs. They're fine. The mason bees are out there. The lady beetles will be out there for us this spring. And um, it'll be fine. Don't you think? Well, you make an interesting point about, you know, the dysregulation of the climate and how a mild winter can increase all sorts of pest pressures, invasive species, you name it. It's a big problem. And last night I had uh, our growers meeting for the Cullen's Foods Growers out in Saskatchewan, where the weather has been truly wacky. And um, we I've were not talking followed about, it. How wacky is it? Well, dry in the summer. Oh. The summers have been record dry. Um, okay. And last spring was um, cold and wet. And then it just didn't rain. <laughs> Once summer hit, it was brutal. And hmm. um, what the conversation kind of got around to, which I thought was very interesting. I learned a lot from these guys was that planting by date doesn't work anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. and in Saskatchewan, you know, for example, we're talking about chickpeas, there's a, there's a May two for a crop insurance deadline. So to, to, to qualify for crop insurance, you have to plant by May 24th. Well, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, no two springs are remotely alike anymore. And, uh, 
last year in particular, being cold and wet for as long as it was, um, it was an irregular spring. And the guys who planted by the crop insurance date ended up with the worst crop. Um, so my point in saying that is we really got to get used to kind of playing by ear and being sort of agile. And, um, you know, you can start early, start late. But, you know, if in the case of dahlias, for example, be prepared to go out and protect them if we get that late cold snap or um, move them out early if, we're, if it looks like it's going to be an early warm spring. But um, it's getting harder and harder to just go by the calendar, I guess, is my point. And, well, you know, uh, maybe we need to ignore the calendar. You remind me, you and I are the gardening editors for Harrowsmith and the Harrowsmith Almanac, not this issue, but a previous issue. I learned something interesting. Farmers over a century ago would plant their corn when the when the oak trees had produced a leaf the size of a mouse's ear. Now, maybe that's what we should do instead instead of looking at the calendars. Just have a look at the trees and let them be our guide. What do you think? Well, there's there's a lot of wisdom in that for sure. And um, you old know, wisdom, by the way, yeah, old yeah, like that's old ancient wisdom. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, having a tool like a greenhouse. Um, certainly opens up your possibilities. It gives you a lot more flexibility uh, in yeah. terms of, you know, that kind of that gas break that we do in the spring where it's like, go, 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 go. Holy crap. Frost warning. Stop, 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 stop. <laughs> 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 and um, really what better, what better way to go through the springs, you know, with a greenhouse, you always fall yeah. back on. So good idea. I don't blame you. I'd be doing the same thing if I were you. Well, Plus, fortunately, I've got you gave me you know, an oak tree, so I can I can watch the oak tree out here, and I'll I'll know when to plant my corn. That's right. There, yeah, there you go. That the, all that corn you're going to be planting on your urban farm. <laughs> well, well, yeah, shut up. That's great. Somebody's making <laughs> fun of me. Enjoy your greenhouse. <laughs> Enjoy your greenhouse. There's no better smell than uh, damp potting mix in a greenhouse at this it's time true. of year. And yeah. so uh, that'll that'll be good for you. Let, let it activate all the happy hormones and. Um, yeah, that's it for this week. So thank you, Shane Jones from Durham College and the Barrett Center for blah, 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 <laughs> for innovation and sustainable urban agriculture. I think I have it now. And mm. um, to producer Lucas and our listeners. Thank you, listeners. If you've listened this far, uh, we always love having you on The Green File. If you've got a friend who might enjoy the show, tell them to find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your pod. And we look forward to hearing you or are you hearing us on the next green file? 